Whack! Boom! In honor of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, what's your favorite cinematic moment of close quarters combat? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I don't think this answer counts for what you intended, but I'm going to say it anyway, and it is Tippi Hedren in a phone booth being attacked from the outside by the birds. She's in a phone booth. It's close quarters. <laughs> She's fighting off those birds. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, and I feel like there's about a dozen martial arts films from various Eastern countries that I could be picking for this, but I'm going to be me and say from Russia with love when they fight in the train car because they slam, they bam, they wham, and it's Bond, baby. And it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, Bond. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I also almost picked a uh, one of the many Jackie Chan things that used to give me pleasure, but the reality is it's probably the Hammer Hallway fight in the original Old Boy, just because I was not expecting it when I first saw the movie, and I still think about it. It's a pretty long hallway, though. Can you say that's close quarters? Eh, it's like, it's narrow. <laughs> that's the whole point. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people. They're in very it. close Don't... to True, it's not other. Jackie Chan on a ladder, like, jumping around. You're gonna you're gonna do that to me after Katie did the birds attacking the telephone booth. <laughs> How dare you, sir? It's true. Even I can agree with that. <laughs> the birds. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 363. It's pandemic. No, it's not still. Wasn't it pandemic 75 last week? Oh, you're right. It's pandemic 76. 76. Good catch. We made it. I just remember joking about a, a pandemic quarter quell, and I was like, wait, I made that joke already. I can't do it again. <laughs> uh, the rest is accurate. You want to leave this on the show? Let's leave it on the show. Uh, it's the week of Wednesday, September 1st. That's the day that in 1954, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window was released. And I didn't read that before I picked The Birds as my bullshit lightning rod answer. So now you know I come by it honest. It's a Hitchcockian episode where we discuss for your consideration <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> we'll figure out the connection eventually. Oh, uh, I, have, I have some good connections. I have some. I, this movie really got my brain gears turning. Ooh, can't wait. Uh, well, David's not here, so you'll have to do all the brain gear turning where for us. Where is David? Is he going to Telluride? Is he, that where he's going? I believe is he's going excuse? to Telluride. I believe he is on the West Coast with his family uh, right now. So, That's not a Yeah, good visiting family. Boo. Boo. Yeah. Pat, when Patches does that, he brings his microphone along. That's true. That's why we like I'm Patches committed. better. <laughs> uh, well, Patches, you're in charge also of uh, getting the reviews for us in David's absence. So. No, not. I asked Dave. Oh, it was no. actually, yeah. This week, it's me. And guess what, guys? What a well-oiled well machine this show is this week. This is close Go- quarter combat. <laughs> it gives people a lot to write reviews about because we didn't get any reviews no. last week, which means I get to tell you guys about the happenings in Star Wars uh. Galaxy of Heroes. It's a mobile game. That has recently had some large changes. The nerfs uh, David and I discussed previously have uh, taken place, and the community is not happy. Not nerf the- guns. Katie, do you know what nerf means? Nerf? To nerf a character? Like a nerf gun? No, I just said no. Oh, okay. <laughs> but a I thought this is- was an important moment to stop on, because I realized it's this not might not be a word in your vernacular. Nerf- it's not connected to the nerf gun technology at all it is connected to the nerf gun technology in the sense it's you make a character less powerful as if you were to take a gun and make it a nerf gun 
Huh. So it's uh, changes to a game or system uh, that the community doesn't like because it tends to make things uh, less powerful. But there are occasions where you want things nerfed, like if there's a raid boss or some sort of uh, community experience that's too hard and therefore the player community doesn't like it. Uh, but this particular nerf was a way to cut the free-to-play players from the people who play money into the game and sort of separate them a little bit more because now it's harder to challenge the Galactic Legend characters, etc. Uh, and this nerf also carried over to Conquest, which was used to be the most rewarding of game modes uh, to get better gears for your characters. But now uh, they decided to make Conquest cost even more energy, which means you either have to wait or you have to pay to continue playing uh, the game. I've so far in this new round have managed to stay and wait, uh, but we'll see how it goes. If you go to the Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes Reddit, people are not happy with the changes to the game at all. Uh, Man. I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to threaten you guys. <laughs> I just, you, I, 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 you know what keeps me more engaged with this? Just specific terms. Again, use the character names. Who like? So Darth, Darth Vader. Okay. Darth Vader used to be... Yeah, it used to be a really easy character. You could sign up for the game. Everybody wants. I still Darth don't Vader, know how right? you play this game. That's the amazing part. I don't know what it's a like. What it's do you a do? Turn-based team <laughs> RPG. So it's like five v five. No, it's five v five. So it's like five v five. JRPG. Pokemon. Sure, sure. Yeah, there aren't any like story things. Uh, it's just a mobile game that's based on gear. So you get gear through doing actions like raids or PvP battles, and then you apply those gears to level up your characters and then create different so synergies between characters. Well, less, that's like deck cards. building. No cards, yeah. No, I understand. I, understand. I uh. mean, there's a, like a whole tune-building, turn-based RPG genre that has like this and the Marvel <laughs> Contest of Champions game, et cetera, et cetera. All right, if you're, you guys, free, you're free to threaten us now. Yeah, if you guys don't uh, write in with a review, I'm going to keep doing Galaxy of Heroes because it seems to be working, but I will start doing my character reviews of the character I'm working for and telling you why they're important. <laughs> and if you don't want to know why Geonosians have synergy, then write a review synergy on Apple Podcasts in all their abilities. It's easier to use Geonosians with Geonosians than Geonosians with Separatists, even oh, though no. technically oh, no. I'm, I'm they'd be working it. together. I'm losing you. We gotta go. Wat Tambor, there's a character you Katie, really do you want. remember the Battle of Geonosis? No. Nope. Attack of the Clones? Not a clue. Couldn't do you remember Wat Tambor? Nope. Remember Wat Tambor? Not a clue. Uh, the Techno Union. Remember when so they sad. teased the Death Star and Attack of the Clones and Geonosis? Mm-hmm. They were I'm, built by Geonosis. I'm aware of it. Designed the, by Geonosis. I know what the Death Star I'm sure you played it in Battlefront as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I Katie plays did. a lot of uh-huh, Battlefront. Absolutely. <laughs> Leave us a review. Apple Podcasts app. Save us from having to do this again. And we're back for everybody's favorite podcast-based game show. Would this character be vaccinated? Everyone's we're in the middle. Hopefully, people liked it. No one left reviews after last week's show, so I guess we're doing this again too. If, if they'd hated it, we would have gotten a bunch of one. I had fun. I had yeah. And uh, you know, looking over here at the CDC COVID uh, spread map for Colorado, yeah, it seems like Colorado not doing well. No, oh. uh, we are in the middle of the surge of Delta variant now, around where we were last year. Let me ask you something, Dave. Yeah, uh, where, do you look at? Colorado's stats when you start getting worried about the situation, or do you look at your very specific 
section of Colorado. Because I started, I've been getting a lot of like New New York, New Jersey numbers where it's like, oh, it's escalating. And it is, but it's escalating in very specific parts of my state. Whereas like my town got six cases in the last week or something. Whereas Newark is exploding or like the shore where people don't give a fuck is just blowing up. So I find it fascinating. I'm trying to be more diligent about really understanding my my place in the in the COVID right. cosmos. I, I mostly use the CDC county map, so by county, uh, and try to monitor the counties near me or that I'll be visiting, uh, which has been going up recently, I think, in uh, Adams County, especially because they started school and Adams County is really against wearing masks in school. So I'm I, guessing uh, it's stuff like that. I look at my county, county by county on um, the New York Times, which I assume is probably the CDC data. Yeah, but even but yeah. the county is interesting because, like, you could live near a big city. Well, you guys probably live I live in, in a big city. I was going to yeah. say, you guys live in, in the bigger cities. City. Right. So I live, like, a few spots over from a big city. So our county seems can seem really big, but then all of a sudden my town is, like, really limited. But does it matter? I don't know. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated. I mean... Uh, if you go outside to town, you are probably in contact with fewer people, some total, than me if I go outside to town. I also admit, too, I'm reading, I'm rereading Foundation by Isaac Asimov in preparation for having, and also having watched a bit of the Foundation series, which I hope we talk about on this podcast, uh, that's coming to Apple. It's fantastic. I loved it. Um, and that book is all about psychohistory and predicting the the far future and like the the fall of Rome essentially, but in space and the whole conceit of the book is, well, actually we will fall in like 300 years all of civilization will collapse and uh, for three millennia, we will be in the darkness, but actually psycho history is going to help us limit that. If we actually believe in what we're doing and acknowledge the problem, it's not that we can avert the crisis. We can only limit it to maybe like a hundred years or a mm. thousand years of darkness. Um, and maybe because of this, I'm becoming more fatalistic and I'm like, yes, people, I, I've just been hearing a lot of stories about vaccinated people getting COVID and I'm just like, well, they, of course they will. Everyone will get COVID, right? Is this a bad stance? I know that Dave, you're taking a hard line about like, I don't want to ever get COVID, but I'm now I'm like, everyone's going to get COVID. I feel like I'm going to get COVID. You're going to get COVID. No. I just feel like we don't know enough about like long COVID plus uh, but that's how not the it point. mutates and well it's like I mean we're uh, right we don't and it's okay that's bad. if we're if we're talking about like is this the thing that kills humanity I'm on a solid maybe but it's probably going to be the globe you know the, the what we've I'm done I'm not saying it's going to kill humanity I'm just saying if everyone if it's ultimately everyone will get COVID then what you're doing is good which is wearing a mask and getting vaccinated but to believe that you will never get COVID might be. Well, also, like, to believe that you will or won't, like, I don't know, if you're doing all the right things, like, wh whether or not you believe you'll get COVID is kind of irrelevant. Like, not up right. to you. Like, if you, you wear live. your mask, you stay distanced, and then you see what happens. Right. My mo yeah, my so this is what Foundation is, is doing to my brain, by the way. This is a preview of that episode. <laughs> sci-fi, uh, you're living the sci-fi secret. Just p power of positive thinking. Power of uh, negative right. thinking. He's assuming the, he'll get COVID. Yeah. It's the power of calculated thinking, actually. It's the it's like fatalism combined with analysis and I don't know. But I is mean, it it's, isn't the point that we rush through the three millennia of dark times then Because we have to accelerate through it from what I'm understanding. If you can believe in statistics, which I mean the comparison in foundation seems a little more like climate change disaster, especially the way it's being adapted in the Apple show. Um but 
they're saying if we can acknowledge the problem, if we can believe in statistics and math mm. and and science, then you can not avert crisis, but you can diminish crisis and you can start to rebuild. I mean, the whole premise of foundation is, hey, let's put all our knowledge in one safe place because we're all going to hell. Um, and maybe we can rebuild quicker after the fall. Uh, good thinking. It's That's positive. That's optimism. Ultimately, fatalism as optimism. That's where I'm going. Hey, welcome to Pandemic 76, everybody. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We could have yeah, just made this pandemic check-in as oh, easy as it could have been. We're playing a game. We're playing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Our first contender is a woman who worked for the government in the 90s oh. and who might be hesitant about getting a vaccine because she was injected with an alien microchip one time. It is Dana Scully. No. Definitely Dana, thought you were going to say Linda Tripp from uh, Impeachment. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Tripp, not a... I don't see her as a vaccinated type. No, but, I think uh, Linda Tripp... I think she would have gotten vaccinated. Well, she probably would have been mandated to but Yeah, by, by, by working at the Pentagon. She's still working You think she still works for the FBI at this point? Linda Tripp or Scully? Uh, Scully. <laughs> well, wait, yeah, let's backtrack to Scully. I... You'll have to maybe fill me in what happened in the revival series, which I can't believe exists. And I just remembered, like, wow, that really happened. They brought X Files back for just one season. Um, but Dana, she's a scientist. She's yeah, she's a practical person, right? A I mean, Mulder is the one who believes, believes in the aliens, and she like wants Dana's back. getting all right. All right. She's right. getting vaxxed. I think she's getting vaxxed. Getting vaxxed. Getting vaxxed. And the good news is, even if she didn't get vaxxed. The Americans would create bees that sting you and give you the vaccination, whether the American population wanted it or not. Again, it seems like with everything she's seen, she may not. But I will take your guys's uh, final verdict that. Uh, but you're supposed to. Why vaccinated. do you think that? Why do you think she wouldn't? What has she seen? In the the end? bees. She's been actually injected with a microchip. She's been exposed to an alien virus that was supposed to make her gestate. So she might bleed but- more in bodily autonomy than we're giving her credit for. In a lot of these discussions of like people who have encountered viruses in fiction, we're often talking about antidotes, not vaccines. So like at first I was going to be like would Michael Keaton's 1989 Batman be vaccinated because he's a straight antidote. I hate to break it to you, Dave, but a lot of person. people in reality these days are talking antidotes instead of vaccines still yes, for some strange that, Okay, reason. fair enough, fair enough. Let's move let's move along. Uh we're going to stick with television. Uh this uh man for Many reasons might be hesitant. It's George Costanza. <laughs> I, I feel, feel like, like his the size of his wallet would prevent any uh, COVID from getting on him. I now. feel like he would try to hold off for some really inane reason and then eventually have his hand forced and like be vaccinated, but be really pissed off about it. Like he, he wanted the Johnson and Johnson because it's just one shot, but everything everywhere around him is offering Pfizer and Moderna. And yeah, he's like, what happened to that Johnson and Johnson? He's yep. the guy who gets both, somehow wound up with Moderna and Pfizer. I he's got one Pfizer and one, one Moderna. Am I okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's actually so much comic potential in him having to put up with the vaccines that maybe he'd have to get vaccinated. But again, after some kind of struggle getting there. Like now be, the question is, did George okay leave his it. apartment? He went to the. Like, uh, they, they were. Like, would they, he go outside? They had a vaccine clinic at the diner. <laughs> I think, or yeah, he would go outside because George's worst fear is that everybody knows he's at home and would know how to get in contact with him. <laughs> so it's George like during the lockdown. Get vaccinated. We're just gonna get vaccinated. I gotta get outside. We're assuming George still doesn't have a cell phone. He's just managed to uh, keep that going. <laughs> yeah, just managed to keep that going. All right, here's a '90s movie one for you. Kenny Fisher 
which is uh, a character from Can't Hardly oh, Wait, Seth Green. played by Seth Green. Yeah, definitely not vaccinated. Oh, Absolutely no. not. He doesn't think anything is going to hurt him, and uh, no amount of the women he wants to sleep with at college are going to change his mind. <laughs> he's been triple masked this whole time, <laughs> but he's, no, he, he but doesn't get vaccinated. He seems like QAnon or something. Yeah. Ooh, we lost him a long time ago. Oh no, I love Kenny Fisher. Oh, let's follow that QAnon. Uh, Patches Acid Burn, <laughs> who is Angelina Jolie's character from Hackers. Oh wow. <laughs> no, you know I think she'd get vaccinated. She's in deeper than QAnon. She's not nefarious internet. She is somehow more subversive. She knows the so truth. She, she saw QAnon and immediately was like, something doesn't end, line up with the back end here. This is obviously a hoax. This is obviously right. Some She's guys no in the fool. She's no fool on the internet. She's not a zealot. Fair, fair enough. All right, we're going to do uh, one more television and one more movie. From television, from Texas, it's Hank Hill. That's He's not, good- right? That's interesting. I would say he is because I think most King of the... I've started rewatching King of the Hill on Hulu and one of the early episodes is about Peggy has to substitute teach sex ed and this this seems like analogous to this problem which is like Hank doesn't believe Peggy should should teach sex ed. It's like why you can't do that to kids? Like this is not religious and this isn't good. No, no, no. And he, but every episode ends with him learning that like progressive modern society is good and his conservative texas values are are bad so i actually think that in a king of the hill episode about vaccination he would come around to it because all of his goon friends eventually did too you think you think all his friends got vaccinated too Man, I'd really have to go down the King of the Hill roster here, but I mean, you know, it feels like Dale's got COVID like seven times. Dale just is repeatedly getting COVID. That's that's what I feel like. I mean, Hank would definitely be trying to send Bobby to school back in like September of 2020, no doubt. Um, well, it's Texas, so all the schools are open anyway. Right. Oh man, all of these premises, both of these segments we've done, very funny. I want to see this episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right, final one. <clears throat> Edward Norton's protagonist Jack from Fight Club. <laughs> in the beginning of the movie or the end of the movie? I mean, I think he's living with us in 2020, right? So uh, presumably he has melted his personality sometime in 1999, but did yeah. that work out for him? Who knows? Well, like he's not working like a corporate drone job that would force him to get vaccinated, presumably. Right. In this in this sideways universe, he did take down credit. So that, you know, maybe we're all living, we're either living in Mad Max reality or some sort of metropolis utopia. Maybe there was no pandemic in maybe. the in, in Fight Club world. I'd say not, right? Like, too much of a uh, individualist to A bit more authority-driven the- to get the vaccination. So, yeah, I don't, it, it's tough. Dave, I feel like you have the expert opinion here. Yeah. I kind of feel like he would be one of those, uh, ironically at this point, uh, kill grandma to save the economy people just because that's the most nihilist <laughs> thing you could say i don't think he believes is he it. thanos is that what you're <laughs> wow i think so like you know where he's gonna go what do you do with male anger in an era that male anger like doesn't exist anymore you just turn it on everybody below you so, so male anger is the people who want to kill grandma to save the economy so actually it was, uh... i think i think it fits now do you think fight club shut down during covid because obviously they couldn't gather for that or 
Mm. They had yeah. to maintain social or did they, distance. Or did they keep doing it to like stick it to the man? Ooh. And they're like, we're going to yeah, just keep... The most daring thing we can do right now is continue Fight Club. <laughs> it's a... The good news well, is they the... had lots of soap. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll never know the true answer because of the first two rules of Fight Club. So we might as well get up trying to figure it out now. I do love uh, the notion that everyone in Fight Club really knew how to wash their hands. Yeah. They just really knew how to wash. So... Like, was really they good at that. Clean. Uh, all right. That has been with this character revaccinated too. Will it continue? Who knows? It seems fun. Let's talk about something else. Do you think the Fight Club guys started making hand sanitizer when they recognized uh, how much of yes. a profit right. they could make? Yes. Out of gin. They out of leftover it. gin. <laughs> Candyman, 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 Candyman. No, oh, no. I'm not going to do it. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't Godzilla's going to come bursting through account? Dave's house. A black mirror here? Um, no, I will not I will not do that. I, I actually saw a lot of people being like, I would never, ever do that. And that's a joke in the movie where everyone kind of knows about Candyman and no one really wants to even joke about saying Candyman five times. Um, don't, don't blame them. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Candyman really quickly. Uh, this is the new 2021 version, not to be confused with the version of the 90s. That's also called Candyman. This version is directed by Nia DaCosta, who directed a little movie called, I think it's called Little Woods. A little movie called Little Woods. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, Jordan Peele produced and co-wrote this movie with Nia and a guy named uh, Wynn Rosenfield, Rosenfeld. And uh, I feel like this was a highly anticipated reboot not no not a reboot kind of reboot whole new cast remake right not a remake it's a sequel because actually it's picking up threads from the original 90s movie and carrying them into the present day all right uh, for kind of spoiler reasons but also there's actors from the original movie in it um i mean the point is here like there was so much potential i rewatched the original 90s Candyman not too long ago during the pandemic intense pandemic times and um I found it to be kind of lacking. I was surprised. I I mean, it really has not cult status. It's just a really popular movie. It spawned several sequels over the years. Tony Todd is a horror icon. I understand why. There's so many interesting threads in in that original movie. It's adapted from a Clive Barker story. It subverts... um, the, The Clive Barker story takes place in the UK, and this brings it to... Uh, Chicago and the Cabrini, uh, oh God, what Cabrini I'm, Green, the Cabrini Green projects, and you know it deals directly with race. It has uh, a white woman coming into those projects and exploring things, and ultimately saving the life of a of a young black child. Um, it's pretty loaded, and it doesn't really go anywhere with that. I think the one thing about Candyman revisiting is that it's it's lacking in layers it's lacking in meaning and i think a lot of people saw this new movie especially with jordan peele involved and nita costa just like a black woman directing this action maybe there's more we can do with this story with this icon of horror um and and bring metaphor into it uh and i was surprised that the movie on one hand it does go there 
but it goes there in the sloppiest ways. It's a very, very strange movie that I think is like half successful. The first half of the movie is exactly what I wanted it to be, which is slick horror, creepy scenario. We have um, uh, Yaha Abdul Mateen II, I think, uh, there in the, in the center. He plays an artist who is struggling. Uh, he lives in Chicago. He actually lives where Cabrini Green was, but he's now living in luxury high-rises huh. uh, as a visual artist who's looking for meaning, and he goes, he goes and finds it in the history of Cabrini Green and the Candyman icon. Um, and for a while there, it's kind of like Velvet Buzzsaw. It has this whole art satire element to it that is really, really funny and creepy. And uh, Tayana Paris, who is in uh, WandaVision earlier this year, plays his girlfriend slash manager in the art world she is fabulous in the move this movie i think she is such a movie star and the two of them have a, an interesting time as they're like trying to relaunch his art career and grappling with the Candyman mythology to do so it's just a well-cast movie it's really slick and then all of a sudden it like implodes it just really makes no sense it feels like it's all chopped to bits and uh so i, I mean i don't think this is too spoilery and i won't reveal everything because people are just starting to see this movie it's in theaters only right now but Yaha Abdul-Mateen's character, he, um, he, he gets stung by a bee pretty early on. And we, uh, it's obvious We're talking about from bees the trailers. again? Like, Two sets of bees in one episode? <laughs> Lots of bees. Yeah. I don't oh, like yeah. this. Scully would be just very worried about Candyman. <laughs> um, he gets stung by a bee and he's transforming. He's clearly been like, infected by Candymanisms, you know, Candymanitis. And um, he's degrading. And the movie gets body horror-ish and disgusting. But to no end, like it really, uh, the final act of the movie really hits it on the nose in terms of just like connecting this to police brutality and, and black violence and black bodies and the discussion of all these racial topics. And it's such a mishmash. It's a very weird movie. You got to wonder what kind of went wrong. It just feels like it, uh, it with Jordan Peele as a producer and writer. I don't know. That's great protection for making the movie that they wanted to make. So I'm kind yeah. of I don't really know what could have happened to this movie to make it to make it kind of flop so hard um but the conversation about it has been really kind of polarizing there's a lot of like our our critic on polygon just did not care for it at all but yeah a lot of critics didn't care for it our critic on polygon did not particularly care for it uh angelica jade bastian on vulture I, I recall not really liking it and then there's some people who are just like people are not getting this movie or like are missing some of the big themes here and the, the, the conversation is so loaded. So ultimately I think Candyman's a really interesting movie. It's a kind of success got people to talking. just be talking about something. Yes. Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll give Nia DaCosta that, like, I think she's a formidable filmmaker. And Dave, you said you had questions about it. What you haven't seen it yet. You're been standing on the sidelines. What's, what's, what's the Candyman cue for you? Yeah, I was, uh, Generally wondering if you think the divisiveness is coming from the visual style, uh, because I'm trying to game out how worried to be for the Marvels, which is shooting right now, which is her next film, and a Marvel movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie is competently made in terms of, um, you know, it has some interesting set pieces. There's a scene where a bunch of teen girls are in a bathroom and, and they're saying Candyman in a mirror and we see one girl who's been tucked away in a stall and like we're, 
it's almost like that scene from the Suicide Squad where we're zooming in on the the helmet and we're seeing reflections happening. Except now it's like a uh, a a mirror and like a compact or something, and we're seeing blood. Like the way blood, man. The movie is gory too. This is not a, a Katie movie by any means. There's like sheets of blood gushing down, and Thanks. there's one where people are just getting their throats are slit and people are cut in half. It's a gory movie. In a, in a good way. And, and oddly enough, Fear Street is somehow more gory. I was thinking about... Did you end up... Yeah, we have talked about Fear Street. Yeah, no, it's The first gory. Fear Street movie, that, that set the bar for uh, gory horror this year with like people going through the, the slicer. Jesus. Oh, slicer. Oh, it's oh, not yeah. that gory. It's not that gory. But yeah, I mean, I, I can never get worried about a director stepping into a Marvel movie and being like, will this person be able to hold the reins or something and control the action and like deliver visuals? Because I don't they know. won't? They, they have no because they never can. Like, yeah, it's, they it's have Marvel people. Who, they have people who do that. I assume Nia DaCosta is there to get some like interesting performances. And from this movie, I think this is a good calling card for that. Like, I think she gets some serious star power out of her cast, and not just yeah, 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 or uh, Tayona Paris, but like Coleman Domingo is in this movie. He's playing someone who's working at Caprini Green, still uh, like a laundromat or something, and he is fantastic. And yeah, I just think this is a, a pretty well cast, stacked deck of a of a, of a movie, and so that's encouraging. She, she, there's a big this new Captain Marvel movie is a big ensemble movie, right? It's it's not just yeah. Brie Larson; it's actually Tayona Paris. Thank God, that's encouraging. That was gonna be um, wait, so my the, question. Tayona Paris is in the Marvel movie that Nia DaCosta is making. She's gonna be yes. one of the Marvels. I one would of the imagine. Marvels, and then uh, the young girl who's been cast in the Miss Marvel Disney Plus show will be. Uh, Miss Marvel in the Marvels. So really interesting. What I'm hearing as a horror fan is that this is a like pretty good for a horror movie. It just is failing to cross over like some of the other things we've gone for. But none of the things that you've said to me makes me less curious. Like I'm excited for this to start streaming somewhere because horror that swings and misses is still excellent half the time. Yeah, I just think this movie has a problem. I think the best horror movies kind of like drill down and become more and more intense. I, this movie does has a problem where the stakes are not raising. It's like mm. the lead is just flattening out by the end of the movie, and the choreography, or the the her ability to track what's going on, like I'm just m- missing the geography of it all. And and it's not necessarily like a traditional slasher movie, like it's Jason or Michael Myers or something, where people need to be stalked and running around and chased with a knife. There's a lot of supernatural creepiness here, but I just, you lose track of it all. It doesn't make any goddamn sense by the end of it, and it doesn't feel like drilling down so much as kind of flattening out, and I think that's the problem. And it has an escalation problem that it would be a great horror movie if it could have somehow raised the stakes or it felt the intensity of his transformation, if it felt more maybe like The Fly or something. That's really the most comparable movie, uh, even more so than the original Candyman. Uh, the Candyman mythology, though, was so interesting. And the, the shadow puppets are part of this movie that you may have seen in the trailer. Um, and just going back through the generations to think of Candyman as this kind of legacy presence. It's also interesting. It really means nothing in the end. And that was so disappointing. I think I've seen a few people, including listeners of this show who I follow on, on Twitter, who just have said, this is not a, the worst movie you will see this year, but it might be the most disappointing because I think the expectations were so high. Right. All right, Candyman. It's in theaters now. Check it out if you if you want if you, to. If you dare. If you dare. Candyman, 
this week I got to choose the movie we'll talk about for segment three, and I chose somewhat at random. You kind of heard it happen live on the air where I was scrolling through HBO Max to see what was on there that we could all talk about. And uh, For Your Consideration was on there, which weirdly, given my line of work and my interest and how much I think about award season, I had never seen before. Uh, it's the 2006 Christopher Guest movie with, uh, you know, most of the Christopher Guest people you would expect, primary among them, Catherine O'Hara. Uh, he's in it. Harry Shearer's in it. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge is in it. Uh, I'm missing many more. I need Parker Posey. The, the, many of the uh, Fred Willard, a lot Jane of the Lynch. people you expect. Jane Lynch. Um, and it is set on the set of a movie and is about, as the title would indicate, a Oscar campaign to some extent. Kind of weirdly more about making a movie than an Oscar campaign, which is one it's of the... It's about Oscar o- buzz more about than an Oscar, Oscar buzz. It's, you know, comes out in a period where, like, Oscar blogs and forums were kind of just really gaining steam. And we all, we were all kind of getting our start a lot lying after this and more of the, like, comic book movie side of things. But, you know, you can see this real fear in people in Hollywood at this point being like, so if some random person on a message board says something, then, like, we have to respond to it and that becomes a thing. Like, it could be some dude in his mom's basement making it up. The way they talk about the internet in this movie is fantastic. It's, yeah. This movie was 2006, and it sounds like 1989 being like, yeah. have you heard of the World Wide Web? Well, yeah, like, I think some of that is deliberate with these characters. You know, you've got this um, this publicist character being played by uh, John Michael Higgins, right? Um, who's like, the internet, that's the one with the email, right? And he delivers it in a way that, like, it doesn't feel like a hacky joke from the 80s. Like, it just feels funny. Um and so they're shooting this movie uh, called Home for Porum that eventually gets changed by the studio to Home for Thanksgiving, which is also funny. Um, and someone somewhere on like what is basically supposed to be the Gold Derby forums uh, writes that Catherine O'Hara's character uh, deserves Oscar buzz. And it kind of sends everybody spiraling from there and kind of like follows the course of the production. All these like various people who are involved in it, the screenwriters, the studio exec. Um, Fred Willard and Jane Lynch play like the host of this Entertainment Tonight kind of show and like the jokes on that are hit or miss but their costumes are incredible like both as something silly for the time and a time capsule of 2006 um, Fred Willard has an amazing mohawk I, if, if yes. really more of a faux hawk I would say and he's uh, he's very orange what's the difference between a mohawk and a faux hawk because um, he's not shaved like his head isn't shaved in any way like it's all just kind of like it's oh, a good okay. in the direction uh, of so a if you're just pushing up your hair. Yeah, you don't like you don't mohawk, commit into the haircut in any way. Okay, okay. Um, Thank you. We teased this last week when we were talking about watching this because uh, Simon Helberg of Annette is in this, along with just a crazy number of people. And I had a really interesting time being like, was Sean Krasinski famous yet, or was he just a struggling actor? And I think The Office had already premiered, so it was like kind of like a in joke for John Krasinski to appear in one scene, but then like. Sandra O oh shows up in one scene, and I like didn't know if she would. She'd already been in Sideways, so well, that's she had been also in Sideways. Weird. Krasinski must have only been on the office for a year. I think yeah, like and then like Ari Grainer is a PA with basically no lines, no and like lines. she wasn't anybody <laughs> yet. Uh, like Casey Wilson's in the very last scene. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, which is amazing. So you definitely have to do some like excavation about like where everybody was in their careers at this point. I and saw I, think, I saw uh, Scott Adsit from Scott Adsit. Like Thirty he's, Rock premieres the same year, so like this is mm, good wow. Him. Yeah, he's uh, just like guy on set being like yeah. let's go exactly well yeah Derek Waters from Drunk History is in the acting class oh yeah yes so this must be when he's working at that improv theater that all the office people went to to do stuff like during the first season so I bet it's just a whole bunch of LA people yeah improv together yeah who were all like kind of on their way up um so there's just there's a ton to like in this and yet also I think I agree with a lot of the reviews <laughs> at the time that like 
a lot of the jokes feel really flabby. A lot of the jokes feel really way too obvious. Like Eugene Levy's character, I think in particular, just feels like a lot of cliches that like as someone who's ever worked in Hollywood, I still felt overly familiar with. Um, So you're kind of like waiting around for it to like turn into something. And like the essential weirdness of like Oscar buzz happening for a movie that's still in production that just doesn't make any sense at all. Like, not for a movie that yes, is small. Yes, it does. I mean, not for a movie like this that's, like, uh, It small does even and more like, now uh, with... than it did in 2006. I mean, people are making... You make predictions <laughs> for I the know. Oscars before the movies are done. But that's based on, like, high quality of actor, director, like, the studio putting something behind it. Like, this is, like, some bullshit movie. And I think another problem with it is that Home for Porn is such a blatantly terrible movie and so, like broad so, in its awfulness that it doesn't make sense that anything like this would get people excited. This is my this is my big thing. I'm so glad that you said this because I wanted to talk a little more about this. Um the movie is just no not funny. It's no. really weird yeah, it's that there weird. are no jokes. I there's mo- multiple things. I want to talk about improv comedy at some point and be like, <laughs> when does this seem to work and when doesn't it? Because this was a big deal when for Christopher Guest, because he had only done mockumentaries up to this point, I think. Like Best in Show, Wayne yeah. Guffman. Mighty Wind, which was 2003, just a few years before this, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. I think that movie is like a minor masterpiece. The music is gorgeous and integrating those songs into a, a kind of improvised script or whatever outline they work off Larry David style. Um, you know, that that is the pinnacle for me, actually. And then this movie comes along and the whole narrative here was, oh, we're not doing a mockumentary. Now, they still do because they're filming like EPK footage every yeah. so often. And that Which feels is, just like sneaking it in. And the EPK footage is weird, too, because it's the onset publicist doing the interviews. And then she keeps asking these like weirdly hostile questions. You're like, this isn't your job. Like The and, like, whole movie feels angry like that. Yeah, like, the, there's the definitely an anger like, to it. If It rem- really reminded me of being back in improv class uh, here in New York and, and, and being like, oh, when the scene goes wrong, like if you are doing a scene... And there are, and you can't quite figure out what the joke will be, but you have mm. to keep playing it. And then there just winds up, it just gets really serious because you're trying to escalate it. But the more you escalate it, the more awful things feel. So the publicist <laughs> is like yelling at people and asking really mean questions. Yeah. Or like Catherine O'Hara's character, she's a fantastic actress. I actually, the night before watching For Your Consideration, I caught back up and watched um, Orange County, the Mike White movie. She's in Orange County? She's the mom. Wow. She's Colin Hanks' mom in Orange County. Isn't this like She's... the second time this month we've talked about Orange County? Wow. Uh, we're really... Possibly. Uh, I think we brought it up like during it. Mike White. Claire Danes. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Claire Danes. That's right. Claire Danes. Um, yeah. Orange County is fantastic. I. It's 90 swift minutes. It's also on HBO Max. Go watch that movie. Um, Catherine O'Hara is a great actress. Yeah. She's a, I just keep... The one thing I kept thinking about during For Your Consideration is how good she is and how her type of roles would never get... Oscar buzz, right? Like, Beetlejuice is probably a movie Catherine O'Hara could have won an Oscar for. She gives everything to that movie. Um, And she's really good in Orange County. And she's really good in Home Alone. She's Mm -hmm. really good in movies. I also watched Dick Tracy the other night, which she has a note, like, one line cameo. You you have, like, referenced, like, eight things you've watched I've been staying up really late lately. I'm kind of losing my (laughs) mind. This is not Um, good for you. (laughs) Maybe I'm just on a Catherine O'Hara kick. But man, this there are worse things to be on, I guess. This woman should have an actor, uh, an Oscar, and yet she's in this movie. She has a very recent Emmy and is doing pretty well. I'm not too worried about her. This is like proto Schitt's Creek character. Yes, Schitt's Creek is the is the funny version. This feels like the scratch pad for Schitt's Creek. 
Yeah. I mean, this where... this one goes for the joke with her where she gets a bunch of plastic surgery, but they don't realize that like, that's where it really Catherine O'Hara's fine. expression is the only thing it had going for it up to mm. that point. Well, that's, so that's what I was way face. roundabout getting to, which is like when they send her into, oh, I got, I got Oscar buzz. I'm going to go full Hollywood and get plastic surgery or Botox or whatever. It's just so horrifying. It's so it's sad. Really mean. There's no funny part of this movie. It's just really despicable. And and even like making fun of Parker Posey's one woman show, I'm just like, she's good though. She's actually a good in this horrible yeah, movie. It's so much being, good. But. It's so much like that monologue she does. I think this is like an overly deep cut, but my friend in college was obsessed with it. There's like her character in Waiting for Guffman has like a monologue that she delivers about. Uh, is this ring about anyway? A similar joke in uh, Waiting for Guffman that's very funny with Parker Posey like really going overboard with acting. If you know, you this know. Feel- this feels like the kind of movie that now would be uh, something they throw up on Netflix and just be like, well, here, look at, look at these actors. Yeah, it has. Go check it out and if then, you want. Well, a, a few years later, that's exactly what they did to Christopher Guest's last movie he made, yeah. Mascots, which I did not remember happened and only remembered scrolling through his Wikipedia. Uh, woof. But yeah, I, this this movie is, is so strange to see like what isn't working. or It made me think of a guess about Apato comedies which were just really blowing up into this moment in 2006 and would continue yeah. to do so. Like, why did why does improv... Because I feel like there was a big improv backlash, too. Um, maybe recently. Maybe it was spearheaded by Richard Brody at The New Yorker, and I'm talking out my ass about there actually being a backlash. But um, don't you think people hate improv in movies? I think Judd Apatow was, like, a lot of that, because, like, so his movies got to be so baggy. I don't think any of them were ever mean the way that this one is. Like, Judd Apatow was kind of sentimental in a way that For Your Consideration never is. But, like, Waiting for Guffman isn't unsentimental and, like, a mighty win same way. It's, like, that's what's so interesting about For Your Consideration, just, like, really going for harshness and staying there, because the Catherine O'Hara character is so sad. Like, you feel for her. Like, she has that scene with her friend at the bar where she, like, says she might get nominated for an Oscar and starts crying. And, like, it's so genuine the way she feels, even though it's ridiculous at the same time. Like, it pulls off that balance for a while before it just really te- but like, in that same the edge. in that same conversation, it's, like, one of the only human moments of this movie where her friend is like, oh, I, I reconnected with an old friend of ours from, like, high school or something, and he's so sweet. I'm, I'm kind of into him. And she's like, oh, no, he, he, he sucks. His breath smells. His breath smells. <laughs> His breath smells. <laughs> It's just like, why is everyone so terrible? And maybe the answer is Los Angeles and making yeah. a movie about shitting where you eat, basically. Like, if you hate this place and you think it's really cynical, maybe don't make a movie about it. I, I don't really... Are there good versions of this movie? Are there good Hollywood tales? I just mm. feel like anyone lampooning Hollywood... I don't even like... And this is a bad take. I don't even like The Player that much. The Altman. I've never seen The Player. I was gonna um, say Bowfinger, which I haven't seen in a very, very long Bowfinger, time. But I no, remember Bowfinger's that being good. really I remember that being really genuinely funny. What about the Hudsucker proxy? That's not really Hollywood though. No. No, that's not That's really industry. Hollywood. Yeah. I mean Barton I, I, Fink well, I, is you're Hollywood. Th- maybe you think but... of Hail Caesar. Now Hail Caesar is a funny movie, but that's like removed from time. This is not Yeah, it's modern not like Hollywood. the not like the present day yeah. uh, modern there, there's is just... tough. There's a degree of wackiness that allows me to like those narratives that this doesn't have, you know? And it's like Entourage realized that in the same way. It was just a shitty show to begin with. But if you're doing a like Hollywood critique, just showing like completely believable things that happen to people comes off as mean because Hollywood's like fucking tough. 
Hmm. You need to put them with like James Cameron's Aquaman or, you know, like the movie is even more ridiculous than Home for mm. Purim, which I think is actually kind of a sh- uh, soft joke. And then we skip over the part where they rework it in the Home for Thanksgiving, which I also feel would have been like a lot of places for jokes. There's a lot of weird stuff in this movie, like Jennifer Coolidge, who plays the producer, uh, has several sequences uh, that feel very improv where mm-hmm. they, it also feels like they didn't give her anything to run on outside of like, can you just give the ditziest answer mm-hmm. where she's like explaining her family's backstory and she's like, well, we would collect diapers and then we'd wash the diapers yeah. and we'd ship the diapers back out. I laughed then, at that. that was but that's a, that's a legit business. Don't, don't yeah. shit on that. Pun intended. Ah. No, I mean, it, they, somebody should have made that pun. The, like, that's the only time we learned that her like last name is Brown after hearing it one time before. It's just like none of these, it feels like the improv didn't hit the conceptual jokes. So all these characters have bases where I could see them evolving into something funny, but the actual scenes I watch them do don't have those evolutions in it. The evolution happens as we like jump cut to like, and now uh, Harry Schreer is doing a hula infomercial. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. It's so cringy. I, I wonder how much it is like, to your point about Jennifer Coolidge, who uh, she's half the reason we watch this movie because of after White Lotus. Like, yeah. I feel like she could say anything and I'd laugh a little bit. And that's how I definitely felt watching this movie. She yeah. seems more successful in just like rambling on than anyone else. And maybe that's because the character feels like her invention and a lot of the joy of the previous Christopher Guest movies feel like everyone showed up with like their note card and they were going to play the game. Whereas this one, because it's more scripted, it feels like everyone got handed the role and like do this bit, and it's not funny because no nothing's organic. It all feels really forced, and it just all feels really horrible. And to your point, Katie, I wonder if there was a like, would it have benefited from them trying to make a real movie? I just I think Home for Purim is stupid. It, yeah, it's embarrassing. Like everyone is doing goofball work while making the serious movie but if it well, was making like... a serious movie that is just it's like the the fake movies in in and out like it's so broad that it like it's so obviously fake which is why like it can't sustain the narrative of a movie being like wait but like they really are thinking that the, the movie I, would never be made i realize i keep thinking i'm like expecting realism from this hollywood satire but like you do need something <laughs> that like makes sense within the world that you're setting up i do want to say for jennifer coolidge that i was going through the imdb quotes to try to remember the parts and when she when they're looking at the test posters and she's going through it and she has the line someone's killed their children and made them into cookies and I want to go see that it's so funny I yeah. love that or scene like, I like that one I've been to a party like that where people have <laughs> faces on their balloons that's that's fun it's really that's the, that's I mean her producing Sandra partner's Ozen. like I want to I want to go to that party it has multicolored balloons <laughs> like it's not that this movie isn't clever it's just there isn't any time that i think it really sings with hitting like a line with a premise at the same time yeah it's just always one or the other and then yeah maybe it is it's just mean i two things before we wrap up one i i kind of want this to become a schitt's creek reevaluation macro lens on the success of that show and katie you watched all of schitt's creek right i did not watch all of it i watched most of it maybe like three or four did you watch schitt's creek Everything, but I didn't I haven't caught up with the last season yet. Just okay, that's that's enough. But I mean, we we talked about the hell. I I really do think this feels like proto Shit's Creek, and maybe it's the Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara presence of it all. But like, what does that show do that's so much more successful than this? Um, 
how it lets the... its characters grow into people you want to root for. I mean, yeah, that's what a TV has... show has to do that a movie doesn't have to. Like, For Your Consideration didn't have to make the characters someone we care about, but it definitely didn't. I think it's like uh, Shit's Creek. You start and these characters have gotten themselves in a ridiculous situation and then everything they do to attempt to dig themselves out doesn't necessarily fail outright like Marilyn Hack's entire mojo kind of fails over this movie. There's like a minor win for them occasionally that allows us to root for them because rather than every single character's turn in this movie is from clueless to hope back to just like despair that's based on that initial clueless Except, I guess, for the guy who actually does get a nomination. The supporting actor guy. <laughs> yeah, we don't go back to see any sort of consequence with that. Yeah. Because there's, like, no compare and contrast with that, there's, like, no forward character motion, and it feels weird. So I think Katie's absolutely right. The ability of a character to actually evolve is what this movie's missing. And maybe Catherine O'Hara's Marilyn does evolve. But as I, I pictured, think... as I said before, you can't tell what she's trying to emote in that last scene on purpose. Yeah. Which is, like, that's a weird place to hang your joke uh yeah because like you, you think about like quirky st Clair at the end of waiting for guffman where he's like got his store with the remains of the day lunchbox like you're happy for him like you care about that guy and it's not doesn't have to be like sentimental the way they think Shit's creek tended to get but like there's there's got to be some nugget yeah. or something that you would well a mighty a mighty win is the same thing like eugene levy and Catherine O'Hara as, as mitch and mickey they they have a romance they mm-hmm. have a rekindling but it's not you know, they end up going in their separate quarters. They're they're both married, and they're or they're not both married. One of them is married, but well, same I mean, same same with the family. It's emotional. It's emotional. Yeah, yeah. There aren't like any supporting characters here that are supporting each other. They all have to be their loud stereotypes, uh, so we get whatever the ultimate idea was supposed to be. Which I guess is just don't do Hollywood. Don't do. Don't listen to the gold derby commenters. My my last thing with this movie, of course, is. Katie, do you think that the awards race and awards buzz does is brainworms in um, the making of, of for, movies? For do the people who make these movies? Do you think it could be this detrimental? I mean, obviously, it completely collapses the brains of everybody involved with Home to Purim. Yeah. But it does seem on to something. No, I do think it's on to something. I do think the notion that, like, you are... I mean... Making something so that it gets Oscar buzz is an economic reality. Like, there are plenty of movies that are challenging enough or weird enough or, like, just expensive enough that they would not get made if the possibility of awards didn't exist. So, like, you have to give it some credit for doing good. But I, you know, it's it's really hard to have firsthand knowledge because as someone who writes about this, no one involved is going to be like, yeah, I really wanted that Oscar and I did all of this for this Oscar. But, like, and they may very well <laughs> think that and they're actors so that they're very good at hiding it. But I do think it makes people probably go crazy. I think that's why you see a lot of successful people who then win Oscars, like, step the fuck back. Like, Charlize Theron, like, wins an Oscar, and then she gets to, like, make her own decisions, and a lot of it is not making those kinds of movies. And, like, Emma Stone doing that recently. Like, I think it becomes really intense uh, and, like, has you putting your self-worth in the hands of people you have no control over. But then again, that's what acting is. So maybe there's no way around it. I don't know. Post Harvey Weinstein, fuck them all. Just move on. Let's Wait, judge yeah, the who? movies. A- let's this move, is my let's livelihood. Judge- <laughs> yeah, let's stop. Is- let's judge the movies after they come out. That's that's what Dave says. Well, we, we do that. Oh yeah, we try here on Fighting in the War Room, the only place. <laughs> <laughs>
for movies. Yep, that's it. Judge. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week to talk about Shang-Chi, the legend of ten rings. I'm the told. ten rings. I really ten always wanted to be eight. seven rings. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can listen to all of our old episodes on... What do we talk about? We I don't think we've ever reviewed... I don't think we reviewed mascots, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't unfortunately. know if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, but we have other reviews of other things that you've probably seen, you've caught up with now that the that movies are coming out on VOD and such. So go back and listen to Fighting in the War Room. Uh, and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. Uh, you can also listen to me on the Storm, the Lost Rewatch podcast. We've done all of Lost. The Incredible. Rewatch episodes. Wow. Yeah. It's over. Uh, our podcasts, if you were to just start the beginning and go to the end, would be over seven continuous days of audio content. So wow. enjoy that if you want. But we will be spending September wrapping up Lost uh, with special guests, with superlatives, uh, with interviews, if you want to check it out, the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast. And, because Patches didn't plug it, Patches, what's Galaxy Brains? Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting about Galaxy Brains, a new podcast uh, <laughs> co-hosted by Jonah Ray of MST3K and Dave Schilling, great columnist, and uh, actually he was a Ringer podcaster for a while. They're doing a show at Polygon. It's all about movies and uh, just weird takes as you can imagine i am a producer and and i like a good weird take and there's a lot of weird takes we have guests every week we, who did we just have we just had kumail nanjiani we're gonna have um gene uh oh, young of uh marvel fame shang chi fame um lots of good guests coming up it's great uh I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair uh, on the Little Gold Men podcast, where this week we're doing a preview of the Telluride Film Festival. It's coming right up. Oscar buzz is coming. Um, and you should listen to Love is a Crime, which we're uh, co-producing with Caden Sartine and Karina Longworth and Vanessa Hope. It's great old Hollywood uh, film noir kind of stuff. Um, I think that's all I have to report. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at uh, F-I-T-W-R. We're... Uh, I don't know. You can tell me how many rings Shang-Chi has, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... What's your favorite cinematic moment of close quarters combat? Or, you <laughs> know what? In honor of Katie, we're going to take <laughs> avian combat as well. <laughs> just say, you can just come up with a better lightning round answer than mine, which will not be a challenge. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Please stop I'm done.